few years back, we had an event where we opened one of the bottles out of the ship um, with me and a couple of master sommeliers and so on to taste it and talk about it. And it, <laughs> you know, it it's a great story. Um, it's it's really cool that this wine survived and that we got to taste it. It was the single most disgusting thing I've ever put to my lips. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's show, I sit down with a very well-known and highly respected titan in the food and wine world, Ray Isle. Ray is the executive wine editor at Food and Wine Magazine with a circulation of nearly 1 million subscribers, where he oversees the overall wine coverage. Ray's articles about wine, beer, food, and spirits have appeared in a wide range of publications, and he has been nominated twice for a James Beard Award and has twice won the IACP Award for Narrative Beverage Writing. Ray is a frequent guest on national media, appearing on programs such as Today, CNBC's On the Money and Squawk Box, NPR's All Things Considered, and American Public Media's Splendid Table. On this episode, Ray and I discuss a wide array of subjects, including trying a 150-year-old shipwrecked wine, arm wrestling with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and the recent canned wine movement. Ray, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to cover so many fun topics with you and share your incredible story. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I'm sure your passion for food and wine struck you at a young age, but when did you know that you wanted to make a career out of it? Uh, not not actually until somewhat far along. I, I originally thought I was going to be in grad school in English and and, um, and probably end up being a professor or something. And then what happened was I got a graduate fellowship out in California um, at Stanford, actually. And um, and I, I'd already gotten interested in wine as as a as a wine drinker. And I, my girlfriend at the time had worked in some high end restaurants and, and been kind of exposed to wine. And so we got into wine a little bit. And then being in the Bay area, put me close to Knapp Valley and Sonoma, which resulted in me visiting wineries, which resulted in me visiting wineries a lot, which resulted in me like helping out part-time at wineries for free, which resulted in me working harvest for a couple of years while I switched my teaching schedule around. And then I just was like, this is dumb. I, I'm completely into wine and into this world and I want to be out of um, an academic world. And so I switched. I, I didn't honestly know if the writing and the wine would come together. I, I just knew that I was going to be in wine in some context. And then I started freelancing as a journalist while I worked for a, I worked, I mean, I worked as a, for a wine importer selling wine in New York um, and then freelancing as a journalist in that around it was port, right? Port. You were selling port. <laughs> yes, I was selling port. <laughs> There's nothing like trying to, you know, hauling a bag of port around New York in August and walking into the grocery store. Like, uh, How would you like some port? And they look at you like, you're out of your mind. Get out of here. <laughs> but it's the nature of the job. <laughs> so, you know, you always tell your bosses, you're like, I'm planting seeds for future sales. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, what happened was Josh Green at Wine and Spirits read a, read a piece that I'd written and an unrelated piece, actually a profile piece about a writer um, in the Stanford alumni magazine and saw that I worked in the wine business in New York and, and got in touch with me about writing for him. And pretty quickly that turned into an editorial job offer. And 
and I stayed for about five years at Wine and Spirits before I moved to Food and Wine. It was a it was a great introduction to uh, being a wine editor, I guess you'd say. Um, Absolutely. So, how did you actually end up as the executive wine editor at Food and Wine magazine? Did somebody read an article, or, well, or how did that? Yeah. Happen? So, what happened with Food and Wine was um, I was so Josh, being a nice guy, was letting me freelance. Um, uh, while I was at Wine and Spirits, and I'd written a couple of things for Food and Wine, and they were interested in expanding. Um, there already was a wine editor at um, at Food and Wine at the time, and they wanted to bring in someone else as well to expand the department. Um, and and they sort of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, and, and Josh was annoyed for about a year, but uh, we're back to being good friends. And and so I moved over to Food and Wine, and then around um, around two thousand nine. Um, I took over as the head, as a, you know, head wine editor for the magazine and have been there ever since, um, which is, wow, yeah, getting to be a long time, <laughs> but a really great place to be. Um, I have, I have zero complaints. <laughs> Best job in the world. Everyone has this sort of aha moment with a bottle of wine when it comes to like making them want to dig deeper. Do you remember what yours oh, was? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember it very clearly. I've actually written about it for Food and Wine. It's it's still up online. Um, I was it was with I was with the girlfriend I mentioned in in um we were in D, living in DC at the time. Um, that's this is a way former life, but but we this is before I moved out to California. We went to dinner with her father, and he ordered a bottle of. Um, I, I, I'm 99% sure, and this is what I wrote about, um, an 84 Diamond Creek Volcanic Hill Cabernet Sauvignon. I, I, you know, it's possible that after this time I'm long on the vintage, but I'm pretty positive that was it. Um, so it would have been about six years after the vintage when I drank it. And I just remember trying to pay attention to the conversation because I was meeting my girlfriend's father and you're supposed to pay attention. And at the same time thinking, what is this stuff? This is amazing. This is, this is, I mean, you know, good Lord, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. And, and it, it, you know, it got to that, and this is classic with great wines. You get to that last couple of sips and you like, you have this <laughs> heart wrenching awareness that there's no more in the bottle and it's gone. Um, <laughs> and I, I just walked away from that dinner and sort of, you know, what probably woke up the next morning and thought, that's amazing. I mean, this is, this is like, it was, it really was kind of life changing in a way. I didn't know that wine, could taste that way or be that compelling. And, and I started actively kind of looking for, you know, interesting bottles to buy at that point. That's when I really started getting into wine and it, but it was a very, you know, it was a definite transition moment. I mean, I certainly hadn't given it the credit it's due before that. Open Pandora's yeah, box. Seriously open Pandora's box. <laughs> Pandora's case of wines, you know, <laughs> So Food and Wine Magazine has a really long history in the business, having been around since 1978. Uh, when So there there were no celebrity chefs, really, besides Julia Child at the time. How did the magazine first get its successful start? And what was the overall vision behind it? Well, <laughs> you'll be amused. Um, so the, the overall vision behind Food and Wine originally was it was kind of a, like a a lifestyle magazine for the man of good taste, I guess you'd say. And, and it launched as a, as an 18 page insert in Playboy. Um, <laughs> which it's not really what, what one expects from food and wine today. But if you, you know, we have that, you know, the original, you know, issue of Playboy, whenever it was, I, you know, 
who knows what else was in it, but um, food and wine started as a, as a, as that was the way they got attention for it. And it, and it shifted pretty quickly um, to being not, you know, not aimed solely at a, at a male audience. And now actually our audience is probably 65% women and 35% men. Um, but it, it was aimed at a kind of culinary, you know, uh, sort of level of, of love of food and interest in wine that wasn't really what was going on at the time in, in the U S in the seventies. I mean, you know, the late seventies was, I, I mean, probably sort of like that was when people were like, Oh my God, croissants, you know, what are the strange crescent shaped things from France? <laughs> and, and so it was a, you know, it was, it was a, it was launched at the right time because that was partly when things started to take off. But you're quite right. There were, there was, I mean, celebrity shifts. I mean, there was Julia Child. I mean, maybe Jacques Papin was doing TV at that point, but I don't think so. The Galloping Gourmet. I mean, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, it was a very, very different era. Um, you don't really hit the celebrity chef thing till the, honestly, till the, you know, mid late nineties. Um, I think Emerald probably qualifies as the first. And Julia Child wasn't a, a, you know, it's interesting. She was, I mean, she's brilliant and an amazing figure, but she wasn't what really think we really think of as a celebrity chef today because she wasn't restaurant related. Um, she was a cook um, and, a, and a cookbook author, and and she's kind of a goddess. But um, but this whole kind of apparatus of celebrity and and you know cooking shows and and com- competitions and flashing knives around fire everywhere wasn't really the 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 mode back then to say the least. Um, yeah. So I guess you you marketed to a few people who do subscribe to Playboy and read the actual articles. Yeah, back then that was that was the idea. That was hook the hook the guys who were you know have other interests <laughs> and get them to buy it. But you know, pretty quickly that that changed. Um, you know, we were we were founded by the Batterbury Michael and and Adrian, I think her name was um, is um, who who went on to found Food Arts. Um, they sold it relatively quickly, and American Express Publishing picked us up, I believe, in the in the mid to late eighties. And then Amex Publishing owned it for a long time until until fairly recently, a few like five years ago, when we were sold to Time Inc. And then Time Inc. was sold to Meredith Corporation about three years ago. So, um, but that initial kind of uh, you know that initial run of food and wine was felt very different from what it is now. It, it wasn't focused on personalities. It was much more focused on, on, uh, you know, we, we didn't have chef personalities in the same way. Um, and, and it, I mean, honestly, the visual side of food has changed so much. If you look at our old covers from, from 1978 or 82, it's, it just looks so different from what we work now. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, wow, that was, interesting food journalism um so you know and it it's shifted a lot for sure um and a lot of things have changed recently how would you say that covid has affected your industry oh the covid thing's been i mean our so it that's it's kind of an interesting question because our industry is i mean we're part of the journalism the magazine world and the and the and the digital online media world but what we do has an enormous amount to do with chefs and restaurants um, and wineries, obviously. But and the and COVID has um, has decimated the restaurant world at the moment. Um, it's very hard to know how this is going to play out and how restaurants are going to come back from this and in what form or fashion they're going to come back. Um, 
you know, the, the restaurant, the people don't realize how big the restaurant is, industry is and how many people and employees and which is in the millions. And, um, and they don't also realize how many different businesses restaurants touch on. We were, we just did a panel, a virtual panel because everybody's on zoom these days. Recently, that was me and Hunter Lewis, our editor in chief and Ashley Christensen from pools diner and so on in North Carolina and Bobby Stuckey from, um, Frosca and, and Boulder about the future of restaurants. And, you know, one of the commenters was said, you know, I'm a farmer, a small scale farmer in Northern California. And my, my sales are down 65% because of all the closed restaurants and, you know, restaurants affect farms. So the, having restaurants closed affects farms. It affects certainly people's jobs. It affects, you know, large scale food delivery companies like Baldor. Um, it, you know, all across the board, huge, huge amounts of, of financial repercussion. And so that affects what we do because, we write a lot about chefs and about restaurants. And in fact, when COVID hit, we were putting <laughs> what we thought were the finishing touches on our July restaurant issue, which um, we <laughs> had to really rethink um, in a lot of ways. And and it's the issue where we announce our best new chefs, um, which is an ongoing, I mean, we've done this for 30 odd years. Um, and, and the track record on best new chefs has been amazing. Some of the you know top chef talents in the US have been food and wine best new chefs over the years. And we didn't do anything like cancel best and chefs. Cause that would be, it would be stupid. Honestly, these people are so talented. They're going to, you know, recover in some way, but you can't write about restaurants right now without, without taking into account what's going on with them. And so we really had to rethink how we were going to talk about this and also try and look you know, the nature of print publishing. When we're talking about, you know, the digital side is easy. You you write now for publishing tomorrow or publishing a little bit later next week. And so we've been covering a lot of immediate news on the restaurant front on our website. But for print, you're looking three or four months out, um, just the nature of the production cycle. And so we're finishing up June and sending it to press in, you know, late April um, and uh, sorry, July. And and so you're trying to predict in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of restaurants everywhere being shuttered, what the restaurant landscape is going to look like, you know, in July. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, we gave it a shot, <laughs> you know, we <laughs> in July and tell us whether we got it right or not. But, um, it, it has, it has been really interesting. It's, it's not, you know, the nature of the food business is not, uh, uh, writing about food, you know, for food and wine is not usually about crisis reporting and usually not about yeah. writing about people losing jobs and how can you support these people? And, and so it's been a, you know, it's been both difficult and interesting and I hope useful to both the business and to our readers, most of whom are not in the restaurant business. Um, it, you know, uh, it's, it's certainly, it's really been an exhausting few weeks. That's for sure. All of it done of course, from like yeah. one's bedroom like, virtually. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, piggybacking off of that, I think something that's very near and dear to everyone right now is pairing wine with our quarantine snacks. And I know that there's something that you've written about before. So I have to ask, uh, what would you pair with Doritos? Well, see that, now that's a very interesting question because there are many, many kinds of Doritos. <laughs> the uh, the True. Dorito <laughs> is very different from the ranch style Dorito, which is very different from the regular Dorito. And and it's funny, I've I've done you know, and God willing, we get to go back to food festivals again, you know, sometime soon. You know, I've done a seminar at I just did it at, actually at Charleston Wine and Food at the beginning of March, right before this all happened, about pairing wine with potato chips and. 
and it's there's a there's a classic rule in wine pairing, which is you know it's not the pro, it's not the protein, it's the sauce, and I, I think that kind of goes for Doritos or or or, um, or potato chips as well. It's not the it's not the actual corn or the or the potato. It's the it's the seasoning that's on the chip, and so totally you know, fair. But generally speaking, I mean salt, you know, which is pretty much given unless you're buying unsalted Doritos, and I and I I feel for you then because no taste, <laughs> you know, salt among other things will sort of moderate acidity a little bit make wines taste a little less tart it'll also makes flavors pop i mean that everybody who cooks knows that you know a little bit of salt doesn't necessarily make the food taste salty it just makes everything sort of like come alive more and everybody knows when you taste something and you're like hmm, not enough salt maybe i'll put some salt on this and it suddenly tastes better even though it doesn't taste salty that's why people love salt so much but then there are other weird things like you know you know if you've got nacho cheese doritos you've basically got you know Doritos covered with a layer of fat. <laughs> it's just honestly, and and fat tends to coat your mouth, and so something like that will work better with a you know a wine with some tannins in it, for instance, so like a red with with you know a little bit of robust tannins to kind of cut through that fat. It's the same principle behind pouring a pretty robust red with a steak, for instance. Um, you know that the, the fat in the steak is is you know you basically kind of. You know, it's almost like scrubbing bubbles through your mouth. You use the, the tannins and the, and the wine to kind of refresh your palate. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, so you can have a ton of fun pairing <laughs> pairing wine with with you know isolation snacks. <laughs> <laughs> so then, going off of the previous question, I'm sure with everyone being quarantined, especially parents with little ones at home or kids, you know, being homeschooled, wine consumption has really been on the rise. So you've written about this before as well, and it really applies to today. So what's the best way for parents to cure a hangover or anyone to cure a hangover best way to cure a hangover is first one first thing is don't drink too much i mean but i mean that's you know but everybody talks about wine you know is it have you know sulfites in it etc is it sweet to give me a hangover i'll tell you the one thing that gives you a hangover is alcohol <laughs> so, so there's that but once once you have once you have the hangover of course it is too late to not drink so much um you know water dehydration is a huge part of hangovers um i'm a i'm a firm believer in the large glass of water before going to bed. Um, even if it means you have to get up in the middle of the night, um, if you've been drinking. I'm so bad at that. My husband's so good at that. I'm so bad yeah, at it. And, it. and it honestly does make a difference. I mean, honestly, the, the classic sort of, you know, for every glass of wine you have, have a glass of water works pretty well too. Um, there's a, there's actually a really interesting product that just came out. I, and, and it's, it's one of the things that in my job you run across this, this I literally ran across cause I was having lunch in Tribeca grill in New York with a friend who's in the wine business. And this other guy at a table nearby knew the guy I was having lunch with and, and was kind of tangentially in the wine business, started talking to him and then said, Oh, by the way, my brother's a, you know, a PhD MD who works at, you know, um, I forget he's Cal, UCAL or Berkeley or whatever. And he's developed this thing called SoBar, which is a protein, you know, protein bar that, helps metabolize alcohol if you eat it while you're drinking alcohol. And I was like, this is crazy. And I looked, I, I, I reached out to the guy and I talked to him and it's really fascinating. And he sent me a bunch of them and I've played around with them and they do really seem to work. They, it's a, I mean, the, the chemistry on it's beyond my comprehension, but it's, it's a, it's a fascinating product. It looks like, you know, it looks like a, looks like a protein bar. It looks like a, you know, whatever, you know, wrapped up, wow. you know, take your pick of, of brands, but it's called SoBar. And I, and I, I mean, I haven't laboratory tested it, but I have used the laboratory of my own body. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to do a pretty good job. So that was cool. 
Wow. And, what, a, what a clever name yeah. too. So yeah, I, so I, I thought it was pretty cool. So I will probably write about it at some point. I, I mean, originally he was going to come to our big event in Aspen, which is in June normally, and and have a table in our main tasting tent to talk about the product. But um, alas, like everybody else, we canceled our event in Aspen. Uh, we, you know, mm-hmm. somehow the time isn't right for a five thousand person food festival. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, Going through some old videos, I stumbled across you sitting down with William Shatner discussing barbecue and drinking wine from a shipwreck that was over 150 years old. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, I'm assuming you mean the shipwreck, not William Shatner. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. William Shatner was an <laughs> yes. experience all of its own, and and kind of wonderful for me as a like you know when I was a Star Trek fan when I was a kid. But um, oh yeah, but yeah. So what had happened was the. A couple of guys in the Bahamas who are divers had had come across this wreck um, that was a Civil War blockade runner. Um, so it's from the 18, 1870s or whatever, 1860. Give my lack of knowledge of this, the exact Civil War dates these days. But anyway, it got it. It didn't get it didn't get sunk by enemy fire or anything. It, it, it's the story is that it seems to have actually been sunk by. Um, the local guides at the time leading them into the rocks, and then and then with an eye to scavenging what the con, you know, what was in the ship. Regardless, it sank with a lot of its cargo intact. And when they do, when they did the recovery on it, and this was for a movie they were making, they found a case of of what seemed to be wine, um, and which had been down there undisturbed since things sank, um, which is kind of cool. And then so what what we did was we and they got in touch with me about doing a story on it, which I did in, in food and wine. And, and we ended up at the Charles, again, Charleston wine and food festival. A few years back, we had an event where we opened one of the bottles out of the ship um, with me and a couple of master sommeliers and so on to taste it and talk about it. And it, <laughs> you know, it, it's a great story. Um, it's, it's really cool that this wine survived and that we got to taste it. It was the single most disgusting thing I've ever t- put to my lips. Um, Oh, yeah, no. I, it, the problem is that it's a little unclear whether it was wine or spirits or 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 what. The other problem is that with wine, there have been there have been shipwreck wines recovered. There's, there was a there was cases of champagne actually recovered like out of the Baltic Sea from the 1800s that um, were in gorgeous shape. But the Baltic Sea is very cold, and the water off uh, Bermuda is not cold. It's like 72 degrees and a hundred years at 72 degrees for any wine is, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's underwater or above ground, it's going to kill it dead as a doornail. So, so, it, oh, yeah. um, it, 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 I mean, it was, the panel was really kind of fun because we were all trying to deal with like, how quickly can I spit this out and get it out of my mouth? Cause it's revolting. It tasted like, I mean, it tasted like something SpongeBob would drink, you know, it's like essence of crab with, you know, acidity and Ugh. skelp, you know? <laughs> so it was a, it was an, ex, it was an adventure um, with a great story behind it that resulted in a really disgusting wine. <laughs> wow. Completely rancid. That sounds yeah. horrible. Well, though I did, I, I did learn to scuba. <laughs> the experience. The experience was great. I learned to scuba dive for the story. So that was, that was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm always on the lookout for is great value. And many up and coming wine regions have incredible wine without the price tag. What are some of your 
top new and exciting wine regions and why? Yeah, so uh, there there are always new regions popping up, which is kind of weird because all the new regions have actually been making wine for a long time usually, but we just sort of just rediscover them or, or stuff happens to bring them back into visibility. Um, I Right now, I'm really interested in this far south of Chile. Um, I mean, Chile has always been known as a fairly good value region, but the Far southern regions like Malay, which was where that horrible earthquake was a few years back, and Biobio and Itata and, and Patagonia, the Chilean side, are producing some really cool wines. It's a it's a much some actually a much cooler region. So they literally are, you know, cooler climate wines. And and there's some there's just some wonderful wines that are not terribly expensive coming out of there, which I think is cool. Um I also, you know, I, I'm I'm fascinated by Australia right now because effectively what happened with Yellow, with Australia in the US is that Yellowtail effectively took over the market. I mean, Yellowtail became like 65% of the market for Australian wines in the US, which meant that people's idea of what Australian wine was essentially was locked to this one brand and this one style of wine. Um, and a lot of the more interesting Australian producers effectively just pulled out of the US market for a while. Um, it was it was hard to sell the wine. Um and that's changing, and and there's a there's a trickle that's becoming more than a trickle of really cool wine from Australia coming into the U.S. from places like Yarra Valley and Victoria, from um, from Western Australia um, around you know the area around Perth, uh, Margaret River, and so on. And I think it's I really think it's a good time for people to sort of look at Australian wine again, and and, and again it offers you know everything from from really good values to to quite high end wines, but it it um. If you if you look to the smaller producers and the kind of you know ambitious producers, there's some really cool stuff going on, um, and it, you know and also in southern Italy continues to be a great you know Puglia Sicily. There's just you know just remarkably good wine for the value coming out of there. Um, you know you can spend ten twelve bucks and get a, a killer bottle of red wine, white wine a little less so I think because Puglia particularly is pretty warm, um, but uh, but the reds can be killer deals for sure. Oh, yeah. My husband and I have been uh, exploring a lot of the like, Rosa de Montecinos lately. Yeah, or, um, which yeah. are so nice because they cost way less than Brunello de Montecino. <laughs> yes, which is my favorite. Yeah. So, I love Brunello too, but I, I do the... not love paying for Brunello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, that's actually something interesting. Can I ask you about one of my favorite varietals? Um, it, it's been given a really bad reputation, and that's Merlot. What happened to give Merlot a bad name? And have you seen some sort of trend of it coming back into the fold? Yeah, no, I, I, I uh, in fact, I wrote about this pretty recently in Food and Wine in, in the April issue. Um, I, I think Merlot is due for a comeback for sure. I, there's some, there's terrific Merlot out there. It's weird. It's, it, you know, it essentially got, <laughs> it got badly beat up by the movie Sideways, um, which, which it, at this point is interesting because any, anyone who saw Sideways probably remembers, you know, I'm not going to drink any Merlot. Um, but, the the truth is that movie came out like 16 years ago. It's, it's an eon ago. And I was, you know, I was talking with some of the junior editors at Food and Wine at one point. It was like, you know, sideways. They were like, what's a sideways? Um, so so <laughs> I, I think that stigma associated with it has kind of faded. And that's, and that's good because the grape itself can make extraordinary wines. I mean, some of the... You know, some of the greatest wines in the world, you know, Chateau Petrus, you know, Masetto, these are, these are both like multi-hundred dollar, if not thousand dollar wines are, are Merlot. Um, and it makes really wonderful, affordable wines too. 
at at the time in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was a lot of there was a lot of bad Merlot around. So it wasn't entirely unjustified of, of the character in sideways to, to beat up on it. Um, it was overcropped. It was, you know, you got a lot of kind of green, just not very good stuff, but that's, that's honestly shifted. In fact, it's probably easier to find bad Pinot Noir right now um, <laughs> in some ways, because people planted so much of it in the wrong places. Um, but I think when Merlot is on, you know, when someone does a good job with it, it's a beautiful grape. It's, you know, it's a little bit less, austere and tannic than Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a little more generous and it can be, you know, it can be a very sexy wine. It's like, it's like luscious and it, and it, and it, you know, has a kind of dark, you know, uh, you know, sultriness to, you know, to use all those wine, wine writer words that people are like, come on, give me a break. It's not sultry, but you know, I, I actually <laughs> think that's not a bad way to describe it. So, uh, I agree. You know, that's, that's my, it was actually, it was Paul Giamatti, yeah, right? That Yeah. That- Mile. Yeah, Miles was the character, um, and it was Paul Giamatti, um, who actually lives relatively close to me in Brooklyn. I think um, I've seen oh. seen him on the street. So he's either wandering around Brooklyn for no reason, or he lives near here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so we're actually here to talk today to talk about the Can Wine Wine Movement. But that's a topic that's been facing quite a bit of resistance currently, much like screw cap bottles previously faced why the move towards aluminum cans and why is it getting so much resistance well you know i think it's uh, so it's a two-part question why the move toward it and why so much resistance the move toward it i think is a couple of things i think the can wines are largely aimed at a millennial audience um or or a convenience audience one of the two um you know and the packaging definitely skews towards irreverence and non-pretentiousness and quirkiness in some ways it's also you know there's also a lot of like flip-flop or you know or or beach imagery or you know that kind of thing which which obviously is aimed at the what do you do in a place where you can't have glass bottles um and i think that the reason that it's taken off is because the initial people who started doing it like union wine company in 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 Oregon, um, were so successful. And, and, and then, so as usual, you saw a smaller wine company, you know, have a big success with it. And all the bigger wine companies like Gallo and, you know, Constellation and so on, then kind of looked at themselves and said, oh, we got to jump on this, you know, it's, I mean, a little like what you see with, you know, White Claw took off and then every, now there's, you know, God knows how many different people are, are doing, you know, hard seltzer. Um, but yes. canned wine, you know, I think there's also a sense that, you know, it is, environmentally sounder than than glass bottles it weighs less the carbon footprint's lower it's recyclable um the packaging that is um the and it and i and i do think that there's um you know wine has a kind of pretentiousness associated with it that some people like you know that's it's it's you know wine's a special beverage it's fancy and canned wines um are very not that they're very not fancy um they're either irreverent or or cheesy, you know, depending on your take on them. And I think there's a lot of people who like that, that, you know, um, and I think it does skew younger and people want to, uh, uh, you know, to be able to drink wine and not think of it as a, as a super special occasion. You know, this, this chef once said to me, it's like, um, you know, things don't have to be special all the time. Sometimes rice is just rice, you know, and, and, and that's, that's fair. Um, I think the resistance to canned wine is, it's pretty strong too. And I, and I, you know, there's the, there's the question of how, when, like, 
you know, is the packaging itself good for the wine? There's also the, oh my God, it looks incredibly cheap. Why would I ever drink wine out of a can? Um, and then there's the, the whole realm of, of sort of fine wine doesn't obviously exist in cans. You can't, you, you can't actually age wine in cans. You wouldn't put cans in your cellar. You know, you're not going to find an 80 buck California, you know, Cabernet from Napa Valley in a can, um, at least not yet. Um, so, so there's kind of a, uh, I would hazard to say there's probably as many people who are utterly dismissive of it as people who think it's cool. But if you look at the growth rate in terms of sales of canned wine, it's insanely steep. It's like, it's not a huge part of the market yet, but it's year over year. It's like, I forget 60, 65% increase every year for the past three or four years, um, which is kind of nuts. Yeah. I read, I read in in June 2019 that it was reported that the the sale of canned wine had actually had risen like you said it was 69% from the previous yeah. year but totaled in something like 7.9 million dollars in sales. Yeah, which is I mean and that's not a huge amount of sales but that's a massive growth rate. Um and if you keep doubling if you keep doing that year over year more you know you get a, to be a lot of cans in the market pretty quickly. Is, is it a trend that you see is continuing to rise or do you think it's just a fad? I don't think it's a fad. I, I think it'll continue to rise. I don't know how, I don't know where it's going to sort of peak. You know, um, it's a little like rosé, which has been a, another huge, um, you know, trend in the past few years. And rosé sales are similar. Huge, they've yeah. been, they've been, the, the, the year over year increase in sales of rosé have been crazy and they have to top out at some point because, because you can't just keep on growing and or rosé is immense at this point. Rosé has effectively become a third category. It's there's white, red and rosé. And in terms of sales. And for years dry rosé was a dead category. You couldn't you couldn't sell a bottle of the stuff. And if you did sell a bottle of the stuff it was someone who'd like spent the summer in Provence and was craving rosé. And and it was it was just an impossible sell and that changed in the late 2000s and and it now is, you know, it's a it's a locomotive. Um, so I don't think cans are going away, uh, and I think the interest in environmental, you know, sustainability. I think the kind of irreverence associated with them. You know, I I I look back. There was a time with craft beer where people. I think when the first people who did craft beer, I'm trying to remember, I think they were in New York, um, in cans, when they first put out craft beer in cans, all the craft beer aficionados were like, oh, this is appalling. You know, craft beer in cans, it's supposed to be in bottles. This is, you know, this is, this is obviously crap. Um, and, and, and now, I mean, that, that, that anybody even had that argument is unbelievable. You know, cra- all craft beers is ca- craft beer everywhere in cans. And some of the label design on craft beer in cans is, completely off the wall and, and pretty amazing. And I, and I think that you might see something like that happen with wine and cans. I think it may, you know, become a, a, a pretty big category that, um, has some pretty interesting design aspects to it. I don't think it's ever going to end up in the expensive zone. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't see people spending 20 bucks on a can of wine, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, Hey, this, you know the world is full of surprises. Look at look at what we're dealing with right now. So, oh, yeah, for sure, I think you know there's a big difference in the taste of Coke from a can versus like a bottle or a fountain Coke, and I think that that probably contributes to the negative view of canned wine. Are there certain processes that can ensure like the aluminum taste isn't leached into the wine or has the ability to chemically alter it? Yeah, so the cans are typically lined with a with a sort of plastic. 
you know, resin liner, which keeps the, keeps the wine from interact as wine w- would interact with the, with the metal. Um, and, and that keeps the wine from interacting and it's, and it's, it's BP, at least the ones that I know that are, are legit are BPA free. So they're not, you know, poisoning you in the process, which is good. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, again, it's not stuff you would age, you know, canned wine is, is, is for immediate consumption. And I, I, I would wonder if you like came across canned wine as two years old, whether that liner lining would still, you know, work the way you wanted it to. But, um, but if you're like picking up some wine to go down to the beach, um, since the beaches may be reopening, you know, um, you know, <laughs> what the heck it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I love writing about and tasting expensive wines. That's no, no question. But I also, because I got into this out of being in a non wine drinking family and not ever growing up with wine and not really, um, and really disliking the kind of pretension that, that sometimes comes with wine. I, I'm pretty open-minded about stuff like cans. It's like people, if people like it and it's a way to get more people into wine then then I'm for it. Cause I, I do think wine as a whole is a, is a great, you know, it's a great thing. I, I do love wine period. So, you know, um, I'm fine with beer, but I prefer wine. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. Well, I think most of the wines that people buy, I mean, I'm looking at my own habits too. It's for more immediate consumption, not necessarily for storing it in the cellar for years. So yeah, that's definitely something that I could see continuing to rise, especially, and this is something I was going to ask you too, is what, what, um, what marketing aspects of canned wine do you think need to be addressed in order for the negative stigma to, to go away of like a, the poor quality stigma to dissipate? Well, I would say, I mean, if I were, if I were, and I'm not a marketer, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, but if I were marketing it, I would, I would, I would concentrate on the, um, I would, I would think a lot about the design because it's such a nice blank canvas for what you can do with, with the visual aspects of it. And I mean, we all know that, that the label, doesn't actually mean what if the label's cool it doesn't actually necessarily mean that the wine's good but you know at that level in the market if something is eye-catching it's going to sell more and and you want the label to kind of express the the fun of the of the of the nature of wine in cans um i would i would certainly talk about the environmental aspects of it and i and i would and then the main problem is just convincing people that it's not bad you know, and I think that's the, that's the thing that you have to, that's the big, you know, kind of, you know, assumption that people have is that, well, it's in a can, it's wine, it must be bad. And, and I don't, I don't it's not, I mean, I, by the way, I, my June column in the magazine is on canned wine and there's some, there's some quite good canned wine out there. There's, there's canned natural wine, there's canned organic wine, there's canned, you know, um, relatively, you know, high end for cans wines. And there's also, I mean, having tasted a ton of canned wine for the column, there's also a lot of just bad wine out there in cans. That's you have to pick and choose um, pretty carefully. But honestly, that's true of of wine in bottles too. There's you know um, there's bad wine in every kind of package. Um, so and there's bad you know there are bad donuts <laughs> you know you can good donuts and bad donuts you know there's bad hamburgers and good hamburgers so you know it's uh it's true of anything we 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 buy and eat or drink um so i yeah i i mean i you know i there there's certainly going to be people that you're never ever going to convince to pick up a can of wine and drink it for sure but that's fine that's that's your audience i mean the same thing happened with screw caps when those when screw caps first turned started turning up on wine people were like Ugh, you know that's the bottom shelf stuff. And today, particularly Australia, New Zealand, you know, 
you you order an eighty buck bottle of wine, it's got a screw cap on it, um, and it's it's you know it has something to do with the the nature of corks and that a small percentage of corks flaw the wine in the bottle, but um, but it's also become more accepted that good wine can be sealed in a number of ways, and I think it's going to become accepted that good wine can be packaged in a number of ways. That's interesting. I I read that. I was going to say a few thousand years ago, it was all in urns with, you know, just, you know, like oil soaked rags on top. So, you know, we've, we're doing better either way, cans or bottles. (laughs) I read somewhere that, that the wineries that are starting to use canned wines, because like you said, they're, they're trying to market to more of millennials. And one of the things millennials love to do is take selfies and talking about how the, the packaging needed to be selfie worthy because you're less likely to pour a wine from a can into a glass and more likely to take it, to drink it straight out of the can. I thought that was interesting. I think it is interesting. I think it's, you know, it's probably true and it's probably true for craft beer as well. Um, I mean, I, I just love the labels on, on a lot of the craft beers right now. They're, they're, they're completely crazy and really wonderful. Um, the other thing about selfies is that, you know, it's one that's rosé is probably the first category of wine that has been, whose success has partly been driven by social media. And it's, and it's because rosé looks so good when you photograph it, you know, it always looks great. Mm-hmm. It's like the light streams through it. It looks like you're having fun. And that's been a huge boon for rosé. Um, and, and unexpected, you know, um, but I, yeah. I, I do think social media had a lot to do with that. The rosé all rose day, all day. Yes. Way rosé, you know, <laughs> you name it. <laughs> uh, so with, uh, with more brands seeing an increased need for, for canning their wines, um, how, how do you think they'll be able to address the concerns of like club members that are already, um, you, you know, you, you go to a winery, you sign up to be a club member. I would not like a canned wine in my club. It, that's just not what I'm used to. But do you think it's going to become as acceptable as, say, like a screw top? I think it's going to be two different. Um, I honestly think it's going to be two different channels of sale. I, I think that what you'll see is wines is, and, and this is what um, Underwood does. It's like, you'll see them, you'll see wineries doing the same wine, both in bottles and cans. Um, uh, if, it, if it's good quality, you know, like let's say a 20 buck Pinot Noir, it will be in a, it will be sold in the cellar door in bottles. It'll be sold, you know, in restaurants and bottles. It'll be sold at retail in cans um, or maybe bottles, depending on the location. And, and I think that that, you know, if you're only doing cans, you're probably looking at, at, um, fairly budget level and, and, and all retail. And if you're doing higher end stuff, you're looking at, at probably just choosing which packaging you're sending to which venue in a sense. Um, at least that would be my assumption. Um, cause you, cause like you said, you know, I don't think anybody signs up for a wine club waiting to get a six pack. <laughs> in the <middle>. um, <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, what are some of your best canned wine choices that are available to consumers currently? Well, so I, you know, the Underwood Pinot Noir is quite good for the for the price, um, and and it's legit. It's a legit Oregon Pinot Noir. Um, I think s- there's a company in Napa, a small company called Sands Wine, S A N S Wine, who are interesting because they're more in the in the natural zone of wine, quote quote unquote natural, which means very little use of sulfur non-interventionist winemaking, you know, um, organic vineyards and, and that they're doing that in cans is pretty cool. They're the only person I know doing that, um, in that way. Um, 
those are two pretty interesting examples. There's a company in LA called Nomadica, um, which is very high design and pretty good quality as well. But the that's a good example of using the visual to to kind of um, you know push the the feel of what you're doing, you know, to make it seem not just like a can of wine, but something cool that you want to drink. Um, I mean, those are a couple that pop to mind. Um, you know, for more, look at the June issue of Food and Wine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that, I think it is going to become more, more widely acceptable. And I'm, I'm part of, you know, the looking at it from the lens of, oh, I don't want to drink wine out of a can. But you know what, if I go to the beach and I want a glass of wine, I'm going to drink wine out of a can. Backpacking Um, overnight. I mean, bottles are heavy. (laughs) It's a lot easier to carry wine in a can. (laughs) Absolutely. So my last question for you, let's talk about what it's like to drink tequila and arm wrestle with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It's, it's a blast is what it is. It's, uh, um, so yeah, he has a new tequila out called Terramana and, and we, I can't remember if they approached us or we approached them. I think, I think they pitched us a tequila and I, I've been doing this ongoing series called, called, you know, bottle service where a part of which is, is honestly drinking with celebrities and, and it's a, it's a blast. And I, you know, I, I, had drinks with pink, um, Alicia Moore, um, because she has a wine, um, you know, from her estate outside Santa Barbara, but what's what's her wine label called? Um, it's called two wolves. Um, it tends to get snapped up almost instantly by her giant fan base, but it's, it's really quite good wine. And she's very legitimately and deeply into wine, which I think is really cool. And she farms organically and she's, she lives, you know, with the vineyards and, and she's, she's, she's great. She's a wonderful person. And Dwayne, Dwayne, you know, DJ as his friends call him. I don't think I qualify as a friend, but, um, he's an incredibly like the, the personality that you get out of the movies is what he seems to be like. He's just incredibly nice and fun. And we sat down and drank his, you know, tasted through his tequilas, talked a lot about tequila and, um, there's a video of this, you know, which is on my, you know, Instagram and on Food and Wine site, um, and and it was it was just a blast. And then yes, we arm wrestled, and of course, I, I crushed him. I, it was <laughs> it was inevitable, you know. <laughs> um, I, I I I have this vague sense that he might have let me win, but you know, um, I I could be wrong. Um, but uh, it, it was it was super fun, and um, and it, you know, just kind of it was a hoot, and. Uh, and I, I will happily arm wrestle him again at any time. But he is, he in addition to being a nice guy, he is a gigantic guy. He's a very big, very strong human being. Um, like he looks in person, like he looks in movies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. He. Um. So I used to live in in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he actually like he has a house there and used to go to the gym that I would work out in really early in the morning. Um. Yeah, he's a big he's guy. A very big guy. Yeah, um, it, it's really kind of remarkable. It's like you know, I'm 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 a normal sized guy, and he is a very huge human being. <laughs> but but it's super, super um, nice, um, really really cool guy. Um, what an amazing experience! Wow. Yeah. No, no, thank you so much, Ray, for taking some time to talk with me today about canned wine and just. It's so fascinating to hear, you know, people's journeys in wine and how they got into it. And, you know, the, the story even about how like Food and Wine magazine got started. <laughs> super fascinating. I had no idea. Very but I will be bringing... More will know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. That is a good uh, talking point at a dinner party when we're allowed to have them again. Let's hope it's soon. (laughs) I'm ready for a dinner party, I have to say. Me too. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with me today. This was really great information and definitely will have to check out the June issue of Food and Wine magazine so that I can get a bigger list of canned wines that we'll have to check out. Maybe maybe we'll do uh, rating canned wines or something. It's not a bad idea. Well, you know, thanks, Sarah, for having me on. This is a, this is a hoot. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. It would really mean the world. You can join our exclusive wine club with soon to come member only content that we've created just for you. You can join by texting the words CORKIT to 55444. That's CORKIT, two words, 255444. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine, as well as our incredible guest Ray at Ray Isle. That's R-A-Y-I-S-L-E. Please join us next time where I sit down to discuss a highly controversial topic in the fields of food and wine and how the history of food and wine as we know it might all be a complete ruse. I'll be having this conversation with one of the very first two masters of wine in America, Tim Haney. 